Hi, everyone. We're conducting an audience survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes and answer a few questions. Please visit survey.prx.org happiness to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org happiness. Thank you. The Science of Happiness is brought to you by Progressive, one of the country's leading providers of auto insurance. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you say what kind of coverage you're looking for and how much you want to pay, and Progressive will help you find options that fit within your budget. Use the Name Your Price tool and start an online quote today at Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It seemed to me these were the most beautiful leaves I had ever seen. It was as if they were emitting their own soft green glow, and it felt like a kind of privilege to gaze out at the world through their eyes, as it were, as the leaves drank up the last drafts of sunlight, transforming those photons into new matter. A plant's eye view of the world, it was that, and for real. But the leaves were also looking back at me, fixing me with this utterly benign gaze. I could feel their curiosity and what I was certain was an attitude of utter benevolence toward me and my kind. Do I need to say that I know how crazy this sounds? I do. That was Michael Pollan reading from his new book, How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. It's a great pleasure to welcome Michael today as our guest on the Science of Happiness. Good to be here, Decker. And we're going to do something a little bit unusual today for our Science of Happiness, but also very fitting with the spirit of what we're trying to achieve. This is in the context of Michael's new book, which is really an exploration of the new science of psychedelics. And so I want to dive straight into the science. And in a way, you didn't expect to take this journey. And you get an email from a fellow named Bob Jesse who sends you a paper. Yeah, this goes back to 2006. I don't remember the exact title, but it was how you can reliably occasion a mystical experience in people using psilocybin, the chemical ingredient of magic mushrooms, that has sustained and significant personal meaning. And, you know, it wasn't just the word psilocybin in a scientific paper that caught my attention, but it was sustained meaning, mystical experience. This is what scientists do? <laughs> well, Roland Griffith is a scientist who apparently does do that. But at the time, I didn't know what I had. I had this little nugget of gold but I wasn't ready to open it up and deal with it. And th that took a few more years when I started reading about another study in Roland's lab where they were giving psilocybin to cancer patients, people really up against their mortality, and finding that they indeed had the kind of mystical experiences described in the first paper, and that those experiences reset their thinking about their mortality, their sense of self, in a way that would, turned out to be profoundly helpful. And then, thanks in part to you, I met Bob Jesse and embarked on this journey that led first to a piece in The New Yorker about the cancer anxiety studies, and then to this book, which is a much deeper dive into the whole subject of what psychedelics has to teach us about the mind. So you follow up on some of the participants in Roland Griffith's work and interview them, and what did you find? I talked to dozens of people, and they had incredible stories to tell. Yeah. I mean, these really were one of the top three or five most significant experiences of their lives. And they compared it to the death of a parent or the birth of a child. And their stories were pretty wild. Many of them had journeys. I mean, the metaphor of the trip is a very good one yeah. because there is this kind of intra-psychic movie that has a narrative 
arc to it. And especially the ones who were trying to solve a specific problem. There was a pilot study seeing if psilocybin could help people break a smoking habit, which is one of the hardest habits to break. I remember this one woman telling me, well, I had this amazing experience. I sprouted wings and I flew through all of European history and I witnessed Shakespeare and the witch trials and then I died three times and I saw my body uh, <laughs> on a funeral pyre in the Ganges turn to smoke. And, and, you know, I just realized the universe is so amazing and there's so many incredible things to do that killing yourself with cigarettes seemed kind of stupid. During the psychedelic experience, it takes on a force of revealed truth. Yeah that actually allows people to act on it. And after that trip, she never smoked again. I felt like to really get inside the nature of this experience, I would have to do it yeah. myself. And, and, you know, I had a lot of trepidations, but there was no other way to explain what I was hearing from people than to immerse myself. I was really struck to learn that this was nearing mainstream therapeutic approaches in Canada and Los Angeles and in Maryland and other, you know, trying to help people with alcoholism and the like. There had been uh, 10 years of really productive research, people trying to uh, figure out what LSD might be good for and psilocybin therapeutically and getting good results. They were finding that it could be very helpful in, in essentially creating the sort of uh, conversion experience that would allow someone to quit drinking. Yeah. It was helpful to people who were struggling with depression. Mm. It was helpful to people who had obsessive disorders of various kinds. Wow. Basically, the kinds of mental problems that involved getting stuck. Yeah. You know, loops of rumination, repetitive behavior. I mean, all that kind of, you know, those stories we tell ourselves that we get stuck in, that, yeah. you know, we can't get through the next hour without a drink or, or whatever it is. And that it seemed to offer a softening of those patterns mm. sufficient that people could actually step out of them. And then there's this backlash in yeah. the 60s that's caused, you know, by the fact that the drugs had escaped the lab, ended up in the counterculture. Yep. I just want to get a little bit of the neurochemistry kind of straight for our listeners. Mm. So these psilocybin psychedelics are tryptamines. Do we know where it's operating? So this ah. has come out of research done in first in England, although it's yeah. been duplicated around the world, of imaging the brains of people having a, a trip, either on psilocybin or LSD, uh, using fMRI and MEG. And that has found, to the surprise of the researchers, that instead of getting this kind of generalized explosion of brain activity, as you might guess from the fireworks people I was expecting report, bright psychedelic exactly. colors all over the brain. This one particular network yeah. goes very quiet, <laughs> and that is the default mode network. The default mode network is a very interesting set of structures in the brain that links parts of the cortex, including the prefrontal cortex where our executive function is, to deeper, older areas of memory and emotion. Right. And it's actually only been on anybody's radar for about 15, 20 years. It was identified by a guy at uh, Washington University right. named Marcus Rakel. Classic paper. And yeah. yeah, and what he was looking at is whenever you're doing an fMRI, you need a baseline. And so he was like, okay, don't do anything. You're sitting in the machine. Just think. Right. You know, don't do anything. Don't, don't have a task. And then this area got very active. Yeah. And suddenly he think, oh, there's something going on in this area. If it's active when the intentional networks are going quiet. What it appears to be involved with, based on imaging and other modes of analysis, is several functions having to do with the sense of self. Self-reflection seems to take place here. Time travel, right. um, theory of mind, the, the ability to impute mental states to others. 
and the so-called autobiographical self. Yeah. It seems to be where we take information that's coming in and hook it up to the stories we tell ourselves to give us a consistent sense of self. So if there is a self, yeah. and it may be an illusion, yeah. or an ego, it's a projection that appears to be formed here. It's right in the default mode network. I mean, that's pretty stunning, isn't it? That yeah, there are these... the ego has an address. Yeah. <laughs> that's its address. But I love the attributes of the default mode network, too, which is you're telling stories. It has this sense of achieving goals in the present moment and yeah. all the stuff that kind of nags at you. And also worrying. It's, yeah. it's that chattering voice in your head telling you, you know, you, you, you didn't do that right or, you know, the perfectionist voice or the addictive voice that's telling you you need to, you need, you know, this behavior will soothe you. Yeah. And it's where we talk to ourselves. And it's where we go to mind wander. And yeah. that a wandering mind is an unhappy yeah. mind. And that people who dwell too much on themselves get into these loops that yeah. can have a lot of recrimination, a lot of regret. So it's not necessarily a happy place. Yeah. And lo and behold, psychedelics seems to turn it off or turn it way down, downregulate it. And Robin Carhart Harris, the researcher in England who, who did this work and is, I think, a brilliant neuroscientist, he noticed that when people describe a full-blown sense of ego dissolution, that they are scattered to the winds, yeah. the default mode network has gone offline. Yeah. That's very exciting. It is exciting. And it suggests that the therapeutic effect that these drugs may have may have to do with relieving us of the burdens of ego because the ego can be very destructive. Especially in extreme degrees, right? Yeah. It can become hyperactive and really get in our way. I mean, it, now we have to give some credit to the ego. It, it gets books written. It gets <laughs> podcasts made. Um, make it on time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it obviously is an adaptive thing or illusion, whatever it is. But it also is the source of a great deal of suffering. And having a treatment that actually can disable it for a period of time yeah. represents a fascinating development. There's three steps. They prepare you for the journey. Right. They tell you what to expect. And they tell you what to do if you get into trouble. The main advice yeah. is surrender to whatever happens. Because if you fight it, yeah. if you feel your ego dissolving and you start to fight that death, because yeah. it is a death, you'll be miserable and you'll get crazy and, and have a panic attack. And uh, they have all these little mantras they give you. And they'll ask you to set an intention. You know, do you want to confront your mortality? Do you want to deal mm. with your smoking habit? Do you want to just learn more about your mind? You know, and you sort of articulate that or even internally. And then during the experience, they're kind of standing by. They say very little. They really feel that the mind will go where it needs to go to heal itself. Yeah. And that's a real conviction of this work. It's a striking commitment to the mind, too, it isn't is. it? It yeah. is. And it's, I mean, it's based on our understanding of the body. I mean, the body has amazing abilities to heal itself. Yeah. And yep. they believe the mind does, too, given the right situation. And then after the experience is over, you come back and they do what is called an integration session, which yeah. is essentially trying to make sense. It's the most conventional psychotherapy of the whole thing. And you tell the story of what happened and try to make sense of it and apply it to your life. What we love to do on the show is get people's first-person accounts of what it's like to try one of these practices. And these are... You know, experimentation, systematic experimentation with psychedelics. You go on to draw these analogies, and this happens in several of your experiences. Your kind of identities start to merge, right? You know, your parents feel like these trees. Yeah. Later in that, I looked at them, and I realized, oh, my God, those trees are my parents. <laughs> and what does that mean exactly? Well, there, it was impossible to think about them without thinking about my parents. And the white oak was my mother, and the ash, the more beat-up ash, was my dad, who'd been through, you know, courses of chemo and had been, you know, sick by the time I, I, I wrote this. 
And they infuse those trees in the most remarkable way yeah. and still do for me. And yeah, I think that that's the kind of connection that we were talking about earlier that happens, that our disconnection from nature, from yep. other people, yep. is challenged by these drugs. And they do tend to kind of make us feel these links. And yeah. love is often the word people use for it. I mean, I'm amazed how often people describe their big epiphany is that, oh, love is the substance of the world. Love is consciousness. Love is everything. Yeah. And it sounds so banal. And it's very hard to <laughs> fill those words with any kind of sense of meaning until you've had this experience when it seems like, oh, yeah, of course. And that's the challenge of writing about it, is that you're having these experiences that you know sound crazy, but they're real psychological facts to you. You head into these guide-led trips or experiences with LSD and psilocybin, and we've talked about that. And I know you entered into it with a lot of trepidation, right? There. Oh, are... yeah. I was a very reluctant psychonaut. I mean, I, I was really afraid every time. Yeah. The night before every one of these experiences was a sleepless night of a ping-pong argument going on in my head, like, you know, are you crazy? Why are you doing this? You could have a heart attack up on that hill And versus, aren't you curious? In the end, I realized it was my ego that was trying to stop this <laughs> assault on my ego. Because <laughs> our egos are very clever. They have command of the rational faculties. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and they know what's coming. <laughs> and they know, what's, they know exactly what's coming. Yeah. Because I'd done all this research. Ego dissolution, egos don't like that. Yeah. I had a lot of trepidations about it. You know, I'm a bit of a control freak, and you have to be willing to surrender control yeah. and trust someone that you don't know that well yeah. with your well-being, with your sanity. So here's what I could learn about the risk profile. On the physiological risk, it's remark the risk profile is remarkably positive. These are relatively non-toxic substances. For the classic psychedelics, we have not found a lethal dose. So they're not toxic to the body, as far as we can tell. At the same time, they're non-addictive. They can be very productive in the same way bring a nightmare to your shrink. You know, you yeah. can do something yep. with it. And they often resolve themselves into much more positive trips if you know to surrender and you follow the flight instructions that your guide gives you. But there are people at risk for serious mental illness, people at risk for schizophrenia who should not go near these drugs I yeah. mean, if they have it in their family history. Lots of panic reactions. Yeah. Lots of terrifying days. Yeah. And so people have to understand that. Guides, I think, minimize that risk, but it's always there. Yeah. It's always there. Psychologically, there are risks. I mean, it's a disruptive psychic experience. And some people, often because of problems with set and setting, have what are called bad trips. Yeah. The guides don't like the term bad trip because they feel even if you have a lot of negative stuff coming up, and I certainly had many death scenes and yeah. you know, things that you would call a bad trip. I remember feeling my thighs and realized, oh, my God, I have a body. How great to have a body. <laughs> Talk about gratitude. And, and then I had this expanding – I felt blissful that it was over. I mean, wow. the surcease of pain is a great pleasure, right? Yeah. And I thought to myself, not only am I grateful to be alive, and that's a gratitude most of us have experienced, I was grateful <laughs> that – there was something rather than nothing because wow. there could be nothing. Yeah. And that felt fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> Not quite on the mysticism scale, Michael. The, yeah. I'm grateful it, it, there's, there's more than nothing. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that not only do the psychedelics produce this attenuation of default mode network activation, but so do spiritual experiences, so does prayer, so does meditation, meditation and mindfulness. So are you on board that 
there is this kind of consciousness that all of these practices move towards? Yeah, I think that's what we will discover. I think that we will discover that powerful experiences of awe downregulate the default mode network yep. and fasting. And there's hmm. something called holotropic breath work. It's a yogic breathing technique that right. puts you into a trance. Vision quests, sensory deprivation. There are many ways to open that door. Yeah. Drugs are just one. Drugs is a bit of a shortcut. I think whether we call it mystical experience or ego dissolution or come up with yet another term for right, it, right. it is what happens when your ego is not kind of patrolling the borders of consciousness. Yeah. I have no doubt that meditation will take you there too and some of these other methods. But now that we can induce it experimentally using drugs and, and yeah. perhaps using other techniques too, yeah. uh, this opens up a, a really rich field for science. Yeah. And it also closes down some of the distance between science and spirituality that, you know, everybody talks about all the time. And you realize, you know, that's actually a red herring. It is. Um, yeah, it's And that you can study spiritual experience scientifically. And there is, on the other hand, there's insights from spiritual experience for science. Yeah. And that there's a potentially a very productive dialogue there. Mind and spirit are much closer than we imagine. Yeah. The concerns about these treatments that we've talked about and the risks, and also granted that this has to be carefully done, you know, with set and setting and guides and so forth. And it is illegal. It's important for people to realize <laughs> outside of the context of these clinical trials, yeah. this is illegal yeah. so far. Yeah. And that everyone should be mindful. The background to this we have to keep in mind is how few tools we have to help people who I are know. suffering from mental illness. Yeah. And the, the last major innovations was the SSRIs in the late 80s. Yeah. And they're not working very well they're for washing a out. lot of people. They are. Yeah. And so that there is a lot of suffering out there. I'm really struck by that. Yeah. And, and here comes a tool that's showing some potential to help. Yeah. And uh, I, I just can't imagine turning away from it because of that. Yeah. Well, Michael, you end your book by talking about how much there is to learn about the mind and how this opened you up and gave you a sense of wonder at, at what the mind can do. And, and I wanted to thank you for writing this book. It was a mind-opening experience for me and my family and... And I suspect for a lot of other people. So thank you for being on our Oh, thanks, Dacker. What a pleasure to talk to you about this. Hiring the right team for your business can be a long and arduous process. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts. You can pause your account at any time. And you only pay for what you need. Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com happiness. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com happiness. Indeed.com happiness. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We know from science that giving to others, especially those in need, can make us happier as a community. Unbound is an international nonprofit that partners with families living in extreme poverty, empowering them to become self-sufficient and fulfill their desired potential. When you sponsor a child, young adult, or elder through Unbound, you invest in personalized benefits that support goals chosen by the sponsored individual and their family. Unbound sends more than $100 million each year to support families in under-resourced countries. You can make a real and direct impact, offering hope, in the life of someone when they need it most. Partner with a new friend today at unbound.org happiness. 
Michael Pollan acted in many ways as his own guinea pig in his journey that produced the book How to Change Your Mind. And like a lot of people, he was skeptical about this particular practice, which is experiencing psychedelics, which are a lot of worries around. And like a lot of people who turned to us, he was really convinced by the science. And we're learning that very careful use of psychedelics in controlled settings for clinical uses is really good for depression and anxiety and addiction and facing terminal disease. Really impressive. One of my favorite studies in this literature is actually one of the first studies of its kind in the kind of the renaissance of psychedelic research. It was done by Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins. And what he did is he had people who volunteered to go through an experiment with psilocybin. First, they met with this guide for eight to 10 hours just to sort of develop a mental set towards the experience, know what they're in for. And then they took this agent, and it turned out to be psilocybin. What Roland did is he measured, does this experience produce a mystical experience where you really feel like you've learned something fundamental about life, you've moved beyond your ego, you feel connected in deep ways to things around you. So he measured mysticism, and then he was really interested in whether the psilocybin experience changes this particular personality trait that we call openness. And openness is where you're curious about the world. You're empathetic towards other people's emotions. You're interested in ideas and art. You're really searching for meaning. You're open to new ideas. Here's what Griffith found, which is really interesting, which is the experience of psilocybin one day leads to increases in your sense of openness over the course of a year. And that's one of the only studies you'll ever find that shows one experience can really change your personality structure. And then he also found the more that people really felt like this is a mystical experience, that they had learned something fundamental about their lives, that they encountered some truth, that they felt selfless, the more they felt mystical in this experience the greater the changes in openness over the course of a year. So that's impressive data showing careful, clinically-oriented uses of psychedelics really open people up to new truths about the world. I'm Dacher Keltner. Thanks for joining me for The Science of Happiness. Our podcast is a co-production of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and PRI. With production assistance from Jenny Cataldo and Ben Manila of BMP Audio. Our producer is Jane Bach. Production assistant is Lee Mingistu. Executive producer is Jason Marsh. Special thanks to UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. Our original music is by David Michelle Ruddy. You can learn more about the science of happiness and find related articles, videos, quizzes, all kinds of stuff on our website, greatergood.berkeley.edu. And shoot us an email. Tell us what you think about what you heard. Send it to greater at berkeley.edu.